every now and then I'll hear the phrase, it's the journey that counts, not the destination. And in reality, that's one of the dumber sayings that we could ever hear and certainly take listening to. I don't know about you, but I have been on a 20-hour car ride and nothing about the journey was wonderful, but it was the destination. I've been backpacking and I didn't like any second of it until we got to the high point where there was this lake that you go, this is why we travel. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting for Christmas presents. The wait has nothing to do with my joy. If you're not a Christian, you've got to know that God has a very different plan for his people than his people just wandering around in life. The hope of our life, the joy of our life has nothing to do in, in wholeness with the, with the journey because we can't not but focus on the destination enough. The reason why we are doing what we're doing or trying to point people to what we're pointing people to or why we fellowship the way we fellowship. The, the journey is wonderful, but it's the destination that fills our ultimate hope. What we see continually in the scriptures is a God who is overwhelming in his presence, overpowering in his command and in his charge. He is enrapturing and sometimes he looks downright dreadful, but also more than anything, he just overwhelms us with his awesomeness. But to the world, the, the power of God looks bizarre because of how God's people seem to continually work. They might point at people like Paul, who we'll look at more so again this morning and go, that seems awful, the journey that that guy has gone through. And he counts it a joy? I mean, just listen to the rap sheet or the resume of Paul. He was whipped with 39 lashes five times, shipwrecked three times, beaten with rods and stones multiple times. Talked to his friends about his sleepless nights and his hunger and his thirst and just the coldness that seems to be around him all the time. And, and then the oppression that what he thought were his friends or at least his, his own people seemed to lay waste on him. You know, a non-Christian, you would, you would be right to look at Paul and go, Man, if that guy puts a lot of hope in his journey, it is not worth it at all. But here we'll see again and again where Paul ultimately puts his hope in the glory of God being, being lived out through his own life. Paul is being used as an agent of God to where his journey looks worth it to him. And he can say things without lying to anyone that he counts it all joy even in the midst of his own suffering. So this morning, I hope that you'll see a text where scripture shows that Paul's fight for people to know the gospel isn't just this aimless joyride, like he's not a boxer who just loves to continually be clubbed in the face, but actually his work is the catalyst for people to find true resting place. This, this ultimate destination that we can feel as Christians now and that we know that is going to come at the end. 
you'll see time and time again the acts of the risen Lord as you would peek into the book of Acts that we're going through and that we've been going through for a long time. And so Paul works, we'll see, that grace. And he's aiming for that grace to extend to more and more people. So at this last leg of Paul's journey throughout Greece, you might be wondering, is, is Corinth going to be any different than Athens or Philippi or Thessalonica? And there are some things that will stick out and things that will seem like others, but the gospel here we will see yet again is coming to Corinth through this person, Paul, by God's power and by God's mercy for God's people. So if you have a copy of God's word, I want to encourage you to turn it to the book of Acts. You are more than welcome to use the table of contents. Many, many people around you will. And turn to chapter 18. And we'll begin in verse 1, reading through verse 17. So the book of Acts, where we pick up where Paul left off. Acts 18, verse 1 through 17. The word of the Lord says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tithius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. And together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when, Paul, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack, united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a, since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove, drove them out from the tribunal, and then they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. That Gallio paid no attention to this. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The first thing that I want you to see is, is one of three kind of major movements within this passage. Ultimately, what I hope we will leave here seeing is that God's gospel is reaching in what in many ways seems like a completely unreachable place. That place is Corinth. But first, I want you to see that in part, God reaches Corinth 
by Paul through an appointed connection. So we see this in verses 1 through 4 where we see first that God reaches Corinth with his gospel through Paul through an appointed connection. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he immediately found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. So one of those random, you might say, notes in the Bible where it's like, yeah, I mean, get to the real stuff. Like who cares who Paul saw when he first got there? But there are a couple of things that, are, that kind of stand out here. Who One, he meets people who he would later talk about in multiple letters as these people were incredibly, a, a huge blessing to his own ministry. They were like him and that they were believing in the same gospel. They were like him and that they seemed to be removed from places where they had taken a stronghold. They were also like him in his own work. So Paul, when he didn't have money to preach without, or preach without the gifts of others, he would make tents. He was a tent maker. So as he would travel to a couple of towns, not everywhere, but he would use this trade that he learned to, or in order to provide for himself. And so he meets this couple who came from Rome because they were removed around 49 AD by the Roman emperor there who cast out all the Jews outside of the Roman city. So they would have been here about a year before Paul and Paul encounters them. Just this tiny little scenario where we see the gift of Christian friendship, the gift of being surrounded by other believers, where in this case, you could have looked at it and go, okay, Paul is a tent maker and these people are tent makers. They better make sure that they aren't working within like a 20 mile radius of each other. Like they probably worked really hard to set up certain tents in certain areas. It'd be like if I started a Starbucks right down the road from you and you had a Starbucks. One of us is going to start making sure people don't go down your road versus my road, right? But instead, they invited him in and in many ways cared for him. And they, in some ways, started making tents together. Now, part of this was the the town was huge. You know, Corinth was a big place. And even outside of that, uh, part of the Olympic Games were coming in about a year. So the work of a tradesman was was certainly needed, One, one that would... Uh, outsize just one tent maker in the town. But another thing that needs to be brought up is how much he feels indebted to this couple. To the point where he would write letters to other people he would know. And like it says in Romans 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow co-workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Here we see a true case of Christian friendship. Not just, hey, we we have something in common. Not just, oh, you're new to town. I'm new to town. Let's hang out and have a new town party. But it's clear here that, that something had happened to where this couple risked their lives for this man that was continually being beaten and flogged and hated by his own kind. And they did something because they had the destination in mind. It wasn't just about the journey for anyone in this party. It was about the destination because they saw him as a brother forever because of what Christ had done. So here we see hostility immediately happening within this church that's gonna start in the city of Corinth. And it says in verse three, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. So, so something just to start a kennel of controversy within this passage. 
You know, being a tent maker is great if it's looked highly upon. And to the Greek people, being a tent maker is no big deal. Like, that's great. We want tradesmen in this town. There are hundreds of thousands of people around. So many people are going to come in for the Olympic Games. You're actually bringing us commerce. You're actually bringing us money into the city. That seems great. And honestly, people who work hard with their hands are great people. You know, anyone who's ever tried to change a, a light plug in their house, you know, you go out to the breaker and you flip everything off in the neighborhood right? And you might even use that trick where you do a potato with the light switch just in case. And you naturally think, man, I wish I had paid attention when my dad taught me how to do this. So here we have this case where people are using their hands and they're thought highly of by the Greeks. But then when you twist it a little bit, having this sort of trade where you would work a long day's work, where you would constantly be sitting or bending over making things or working with leather or constantly indoors. You're, you're normally not available because you're working so hard to a Jewish society in this area. That actually is something that would have been frowned upon because of a lack of education or a lack of being a manager or a lack of you know, employing other people who could do the dirty work for this for you. And on top of that, you know, some of these tent makers, another way to put it is they were also leather makers. This constant embattlement of what do we do with dead skins? A Jewish community would go, you should learn computer coding. So you have this tension already where Paul comes into a city and some might think highly of him like, hey, great, that's, that's cool. This is you know, this is right where Facebook is being invented and you, you know how to work computers. That's really helpful. And then other people are going, what are you doing? And then on top of that, you're going to start preaching in the synagogue. You're making all of us look bad. But Paul did this in part because he could and in part because he needed to. He later would say in Corinthians chapter 11 that he didn't want to be a burden to people who didn't know anything about the gospel. He didn't want to basically be the music man who would roll into town, ask for a bunch of money, and then leave, hoping that it works out. Because other people are putting their hopes in the journey, not the destination. So it says in Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So there were times where Paul would receive a gift from others, like we'll see when Timothy and Silas showed up. They brought this gift from the church in Philippi. But outside of that, Paul was going to make sure that he didn't have any hindrance to get in the door with you when he was going to preach the gospel. So immediately we see that Paul is bringing the gospel for the sake of God's glory through, amazingly, an appointed connection. And I think a lot of us could testify to that. You, you all know people in your life who just seemingly know everyone. Right? They were Facebook before Facebook. They were constantly connecting. It's like, oh, you, you, you work in that industry? You should totally talk to that guy. And, and that is out of God's goodness that in this case, he gave it to Paul because of what it allowed Paul to set up and do. And, and as he's starting to set up things, it builds more and more in importance, which brings us to our second point, where we see that the gospel comes to Corinth through Paul, through a scriptural proclamation. So number two, if you're doing the outline through a scriptural proclamation, look at verse five. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
So immediately we go from trade to friendship to now there's a controversy that's slowly starting to happen. It's not a controversy that Paul would have people come and see him. It's not necessarily a controversy that he was occupied with the word, but it is certainly a controversy that he was using this word to testify to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. So we see this action where Silas and Timothy show up in Luke's account, and we see Paul not being able, as it would be written, to keep silent. It reminds us of other things in Acts. Like think of Acts 4, verse 20, it says, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is truly the testimony of Paul's life in full. Because of what God did to him that has redeemed him from his sins, because of what God is doing for him that is sustaining him and using him for the advancement of God's kingdom, he can't but keep silent. And he has the word in front of him and people all around him. And with straight up conviction, he can't not talk to them. It also reminds us of what just happened in Acts 17. Now, while Paul was sitting In waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Everything everything that was about him was this stirring up of the truth that was the word. He was like a a one-two step away from always talking about the gospel with people. You might know people like that in your life. You you might go up to them and be like, yeah, it was a great day at work. I uh, drove home on the highway. And they go, you know what the highway reminds me of? God's enduring love. Let me share the gospel with you. I mean, this personality of Paul, it just exuded not only godliness in his attempt to bring glory to God, but also he couldn't keep silent. And when he had the word in front of him and when he had a captive audience, he was going after it. It's like Job 32 says, for I am full of words. The spirit within me contains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. And this is ultimately the pattern that happens through Acts, where the word, even though we use messengers at different times, where the word ultimately cannot be silent. You know, we we see this even last week for those of you who celebrated on top of Halloween Reformation Day, where we celebrate all that Martin Luther did in not only translating scriptures, telling scriptures to other people, even protesting the church that he was a part because he was reading the Bible and going, we've got to change our lives. And that's how the gospel seeps into doors. It's how it overcomes households and how it overcomes our lives. And the sermons that we see in Acts are always scripturally exposing And Christ exalting. Because Christ, ultimately, we see here in Paul, Christ is the climax of all of Scripture. You know, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible at all, you might have been told by someone to start at the book of John or the book of Acts and read about who Jesus is. And that's a great place to start. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do so. But did you know that those are not original thoughts? Many of those things are like kindling from the Old Testament. All those scriptures before the New Testament, we see glimpses if we read backwards and go, oh, I know what this is talking about in the prophets. Or, oh, I see what this history point is unfolding. Or, oh, in the the beginning, when the Lord is telling Adam and Eve this certain promise, man, that totally looks like Jesus. So Luke's concern here in writing the book of Acts is to emphasize the triumph of Christ in the face of opposition and he does this by having people preach Christ from the scriptures 
You know, one way to expose yourself in this on your own is to, is to think, okay, in a couple months we've got Christmas, and it's awesome. I love Christmas. But can I tell someone else about Christmas with the Scripture? I might be able to tell someone about Christmas by saying, you know, it's actually all about Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He was born of a man. He was in Nazareth. He's the reason for the season. But can you actually, from the Scriptures, expose to that person the Messiah? And so here we have Luke trying to uphold this sermon or these set of sermons that Paul would give. But he's not only just aimlessly giving these sermons, he's giving these sermons in the midst of synagogues. Previously, he was going week by week on the Sabbath to expose Christ to these people. He's trying to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is actually the climax of all the scriptures that you've been talking about. And the whole reason behind that tension is because all the people that would be in front of him would totally disagree with him. And so it was like a scriptural battle royale where he was going, how do you not read this and, and not see that it was Jesus of Nazareth? How do you not see this and go, oh, only he was the perfect and sinless one? How do you not see what he did on the cross and go back to Isaiah and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's more than a metaphor. It really, really happened. And instead of listening, they became angry with him, where the identity of Christ as Jesus was upsetting to them, where these hundreds of prophecies being culminated to becoming true in the person of who Jesus was, that was unsettling to not just their lifestyle, but their whole journey on this earth. Even when he pointed to himself as being redeemed because of Jesus appearing to him in his fullness, they just looked at him as a lunatic or maybe a liar. And so here we are encouraged both in part, one, at just the boldness of this messenger. And may the Lord have continual bold messengers like this. And it doesn't just need to come from this pulpit. It doesn't just need to come from the VBS classroom teachers. But maybe it's the other person in the car where you can be bold to as you drive up to the church. So we not only see the boldness, which is inspiring, but we also are in some ways encouraged to know our Old Testament better, to know our scriptures better, to know what Paul was talking about, not just in an agreeable sense. You know, I was, I was always really bad in certain subjects in school because I would listen to a lecture and go, I agree with you, physics. But in reality, I couldn't prove anything, which when you have to give answers on a test, you can't just write down, I agree with the statement. I think a lot of us, we might listen to messages or we might read passages or we might do a devotional and we, we see the words on the page and we go, I totally agree with that. Thank you. Instead, instead of allowing it to digest in our hearts to where we would be able to testify to ourselves as well as to other people. So the gospel is coming to Corinth through Paul, through this scriptural proclamation. And in the case of these people who should immediately see, immediately see that Jesus is the Christ because of how they should know the text, how they should know the society around them, they reject him. But they not only reject him, look at verse 6. It says, and when they opposed and reviled him, it's one thing to disagree with someone. It's a whole nother thing to revile someone. I would imagine that some of you yesterday reviled some referees watching a football game. It was more than just going, I see what you did and I commend you for your work, but I just disagree. 
No, they reviled him in the ways that other people had reviled him previously. They wanted him out. And not just out, but they wanted to go to work on him before they kicked him out. And in seeing this, it says in verse 6 that Paul shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Shaking out the garments is an indication that you'd give if you want no part of your surroundings to cling to you. You want to make sure that not just the mud that might be on your shoes are gone, but also the germs of just being in the presence of someone else. You're, you're more than dusting yourself off. You're shaking everything out. And he was doing this while saying that he is innocent because he has told them everything that he has been called and told to tell them. It's now on their hands. He's been reasoning for a while at this point, week in and week out, and in some cases, full-time vocationally, where he's telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. And, And the reason why this strikes us in so many ways from so many angles is that it is the most costly decision that you can ever make in your life. Who do you see that Jesus is? Friend, if you do not see him as the Lord, ultimately, Scripture says you don't see him at all. He is the Lord. He is God. He is holy. He is perfect. And like the songs that we previously sung, he's also the comforter. He's also the one who is present in our lives. He's also the one who is there when no one else is there. He's the one who never leaves or forsakes his people. I mean, when you, when you put it at one end, he's awesome. And then at the other, at the other end, he, he's a friend in a way that no one else can be. I mean, who wouldn't look at that and go, okay, if the scriptures say that's who he is, and if all the testimonies of people around him say that's who he is, and if his own life is without sin and perfect, then then why wouldn't we initially make a decision to follow that person when he says, follow me and you will have everlasting life? He's saying the the journey is here in real, but the destination is forever with me and the new heavens and new earth. And so they reject him. And he says that he is innocent in telling them what they needed to know. And in reality, he is approaching a culture that's totally different than the message that he's preaching. Corinth was in no way, you know, this nice, you know, green gables that Anne hung out in. Right? It was, it was, it was not quite as exquisite as Athens like we saw last week. You know, if Athens was London of today, eh, you know, Corinth might be New York City. At its worst points, maybe Las Vegas. It had everything, riches. It was even new money. It had previously been destroyed, but then Rome had built it up not only as a seaport, but it wanted to be a place where people could come and worship any god that they wanted to. So they had temples all around, but in the viciousness of man's sins, it also had temples with a thousand prostitutes laying around. And so when you have a man like Paul who comes in with a gospel that is for man and woman, Greek and Jew... Of course, the whole town is going to start rejecting him bit by bit as they see him because they're happy where they are. And he's saying that he is clean from that responsibility. So we know that he meant what he said because of his immediate change of direction. So he wasn't just the guy who got grumpy and then left the room immediately. He left the room and then went right next door and started to do the same thing that he had previously done. Except, okay, if if the people in this room are not going to listen to me, then I'm going to go to a different room. It says in verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tithius Eustace, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. And together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So in God's goodness and in God's care and in God's desire, he sends Paul to Corinth. And when, it, when the gospel wasn't being obediently followed in one room, Paul goes to the next and people begin to be saved. Whether Paul chose this location for his work because it was next to the synagogue, as if to show them something, or because it was just convenient, either way, he caught the attention of attendance of the synagogue as well as attendance of the city as well. So either way, God was kind in giving him a platform where he could reach people who would be on their way to the synagogue, and in this case, a ruler of the synagogue. Like being the president of a club, Crispus believed in the Lord and his entire household. Just another example of when Christ redeems you and you see him for who he is, you can't keep silent about it. You know, part of Brooke's uh, religious family history is her uh, paternal grandparents had someone who was just going door to door to share the gospel and they came to them in uh, either Wisconsin or Minnesota and they just showed up and shared the gospel and the husband heard it, repented of his sins and immediately was like, I have a wife in the back room, you have to tell her this. Went and got her, brought her up. And then don't you know that they had really young kids at that point, but from that day on, they couldn't stop but preach the gospel to their kids. And God was kind in saving both of their kids. And Brooke is an outcome of people who've heard the gospel and wanted to tell others. And so here we have this awesome case where Crispus, this ruler of the synagogue, and honestly, who cares about what he's around? He's saved. His journey is different because his destination is finalized as it's in Christ. So the gospel is coming to Corinth through Paul through this scriptural proclamation and immediately we see another case where believers, once they know that they are Christians, they immediately want to be baptized as if to show the world and show themselves of what it means to be dead in their sins and alive in Christ. It's this cool account where almost immediately within a couple of verses we come into Corinth and the Lord is kind in saving people. So God is kind in saving people in part through these friendly relations or this friendship connections and then also through these scriptural proclamations. But then last we see that the gospel comes to Corinth through divine preservation. Immediately in verse 9, we see that Paul has a vision, a divine vision from God. And, God, and the Lord said to Paul in verse 9, one night in a vision. So we know even if this, if you don't keep reading on and you're listening to me, you know that whenever visions pop up, something big is going to happen because the Lord is going to give a word and a promise and also an encouragement to do a deed, an encouragement to live and act a certain way. And so here, Paul has received visions from God before, but here we have Paul receiving a vision from the Lord in a unique setting, this cosmopolitan area. This consumeristic area, this corrupt area, we, we know that Paul, and in this way, is in some ways impoverished and probably physically a little bit beaten down. And in some ways, he just kind of had to leave a synagogue because he got so tired of them rejecting his Lord. So in one way, we see this vision and go, why, why did the Lord stop what had just happened? It looked like he was just saving people. In another way, we see the regular ups and downs of the Christian life. 
where, where yes, there is joy that we have and seeing the Lord at work in our lives. And in some ways, we can't help but also notice that this isn't the best place we could be in the world. There are pains that inflict us, sometimes physically or sometimes mentally. There are times around us where it feels like we are actually suffering, where we are actually being oppressed or we are actually being tormented. And then the Lord appears both in the high times and the low times. He appears and says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, Paul, being a great student of scriptures, even before he became a Christian, those words would echo in his mind. Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I am with you. Jeremiah 1, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So Jesus here is immediately encouraging Paul to continue what Paul has been beaten down again and again, even at the point of him having to look for work on his own. The, the real realities of the suffering of life were all around Paul's life, but the Lord was there to encourage him. And what an encouraging thing for us to read. Because the promise that was given to Paul was actually a promise that Jesus gave his people earlier in Matthew, that go into the world and I'm with you. I often am reminded just immediately as I'm thinking about this now, where the, the low times in my life where I feel like I am helpless, I'm often not thinking about God being with me as a comforter. I'm often thinking about how I'm going to get out of something, whether a small trial like school or a big trial like there's an impeding death in the family. Here we're to be reminded that God is with us to comfort us. Now, in this way, he's comforting Paul and also telling Paul, Paul, do not stop what you're doing. Do not be silent, even though people want you to be silent. Don't even be satisfied with you got, you got a ruler of the synagogue to convert to Christianity. Don't stop now because I've got many more people in the city. Paul might have wondered if he had already figured out his journey within Corinth, but he was immediately almost refocused by the Lord of the destination at hand, that there are people in Corinth who need to hear the gospel, and God knows who they are. And so he encourages Paul to keep preaching and to keep going. This is one of the most encouraging moments of Scripture. In one, that God is our great comforter, but in two, God knows people before we even know him. I mean, it's incredible to think about. Uh, the, uh, the idea that God knew us before we ever knew him. It's especially incredible to think about, we might wonder, if God actually knew who I was, would he want anything to do with us? And the answer is evident, hopefully in your lives, that absolutely. Because only he can overcome what we think we cannot overcome. Only he can overcome the sin that is in our lives. And it's not by you and I, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or trying to be stronger or trying to be better or trying to be more obedient. It's just by giving ourselves over to him. And that's allowable by him because it actually cost Jesus his life, where Jesus was the substitute for sinners, where on the cross he bore the wrath that you and I deserve be, because of our small sins and our great sins, but especially because all of our sins. And when the Lord looks at us, he has known us forever. 
And he loves us. And in such a way that many of your examples in your own lives might be just like this, where for whatever reason that you would know, he sent people into your lives to share the gospel. Yeah, I had coffee with a guy this week who said, yeah, I asked how he became a Christian. And he said, well, you know, I started, started really liking this girl and she invited me to church. And I mean, that first sermon was all about me right there, that I was a sinner and that I needed the Lord. And I was like, I've seen her passion for the Lord. I want that. And I just felt like the Lord was talking to me. It's like, yes, for whatever reason, the Lord was not done in that man's city in Albuquerque when he spoke to him and when he called him out of his darkness and into God's marvelous light. So here we have this divine awareness that now Paul is not done in this city. And so he spends a lot of time in this city, but almost as much as any other place has ever gone to. Verse 11, it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul's vision encouraged him for extensive witness in Corinth. And he, and he had the unction to do that because he knew that God was his comforter. And he also knew that God had a destination in mind for all these people in the city. And there was just historically great fruit from that, both in Paul and others who were setting up this church around him. We have multiple letters where there, it is clear that there are a lot of Christians in this city because God met that city with the gospel through Paul in a lot of ways, preserving Paul. Satan always wants to outdo and overcome God's messengers, but it's ultimately God who preserves his messengers, not just spiritually, but physically. This is one of those cases where Paul might have gone, uh, yeah, if it's anything like the last cities, I'm about to get pummeled, or I'm going to go somewhere and my ship's going to wreck. Or people are going to want to kill me before they even know me. And the Lord promises him that he's going to protect him. And so he keeps on going. And so then we emerge in this text into a thing that looks a lot like a trial. And so you, you have the text unfolding where Paul goes into a city and there's a lot of torment verbally of people around him. And he, and he leaves the synagogue and starts preaching the gospel elsewhere. And people are coming to Christ. And then all of a sudden, there's a trial. And you might wonder, why in the world did Luke who wrote this book, why did he include that vision where God spoke to Paul? It didn't really seem like things were that out of hand in Paul's life. I mean, Corinth is kind of a lot better in the other places, it seems like. So why would Luke interject what had happened in real time of what would happen here? In a lot of ways, the Lord was preparing Paul for something that would probably scare him, probably make him wonder if he should just leave town. Because what happened here is in verse 12 says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law. So we have this immediate start of almost a trial. And historically, what they've uncovered is that there's this major seat that would sit up in the middle of places where this judge or proconsul would look down on others who would be brought before him. And here the Jews have captured, the Jewish people have captured Paul, and they brought him before this proconsul. In part, maybe because they brought him before him because this guy isn't normally there. So Gallio wasn't normally in Corinth. He might have been on his way, they think, historically to the Olympics. He might have just been on his way in between towns, setting up shop bit by bit, looking at how things are going in different cities. But either way, they bring Paul to this proconsul, and they're saying he is persuading people to worship God 
contrary to the law. And you might think, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things that you could say about someone. And just, ah, oh, he's really persuasive. That doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But in that area, at that time, the, the Jewish people were allowed to worship God. And they have been allowed to worship God for decades at this point by the Roman Empire. But if anything happened outside of this Jewish sect, we'll call them, then that might run risk of being like a cult. And in this area at this time, when a cult would rise up, that was not allowed by the law. So the cult followers and certainly the cult leaders, they would have to leave or stop what they were doing. So basically, the, the Jewish people in this trial were trying to set up Paul and his posse as some kind of fake religion outside of the Jewish religion and saying they're disrupting Corinth, they're disrupting Rome, they're making everything worse, and they're causing people to worship differently than we're allowed to worship. And Gallio wouldn't even let Paul defend himself. He just stopped it completely and basically said, this is an internal issue. Look at what's there in verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. Their opinion was that Paul was persuading people to worship contrary to the law. And Gallio goes on. But since it is a matter of questions about words or names and your law, I'm going to say, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, what's amazing here and what's ironic here in a lot of ways and what is awesome about this is, is what he was saying that was happening is exactly what is happening. Names, laws, words. The Jewish people are saying, if these Christians are saying what they're saying and it's actually true, then it means something. And they're exactly right. And Gallio identified it and said, yeah, I mean, they're saying words, they're saying names, they're saying, talking about laws, but that's an internal matter, so see to it as yourselves. I mean, he had implicitly seen what exactly was going on here, that Paul and his people, under the influence of God, are talking about names in words and laws in such a way that it is transforming the world. It is shaking up the world. It's turning the world upside down because the name of Christ actually means something. The name of Jesus changes everything about who he is and what we should do about it. The laws that we should be reading and should know are completely different than what we've known them to be. In these words, things like redemption, salvation it is finished god's love those actually mean something not not just in this case in this text but they mean something to you and me even today and so here gallio turns his head to it and says it's not what i want to talk about it's not what i want to deal with so do with it whatever you will and then in verse 16, he drove them out of the tribunal, physically removing them. And then they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So here what happens, there, there are two theories, I think, that are primary. When it says, and they all seized Sosthenes, did it mean both the Jews and the Greeks, people around the town, because 
The Jewish people were, were trying to cause a ruckus and Sosthenes was such a bad trial lawyer that he's actually making everything worse by just being involved. So everyone's getting involved in attacking this or was it just the Jewish people who finally thought they could stop this man named Paul? And so they brought him before a Roman court who doesn't want to do anything with the Christian faith. Wants to, wants to make it one of like a thousand other faiths as if it doesn't mean something. The, the Roman law basically said it's an internal matter. It's between you and other people, maybe even between you and God. And so they found their chief prosecutor and beat him. And Gallio, in pure coldness, just turns his face. I read somewhere that when men are not governed with the Spirit of God, they are carried headlong unto evil. So whether it was the Jews and the Greeks taking over Sosthenes' lives or whether it was just another party individually, what we see here is a havoc of evil taking fold. And yet God keeps Paul there for many more days because he's not done and many more people need to know the name of the Lord. You know, it's interesting when you look at this story that, that Luke's put in front of us, we kind of see two bookends here that look pretty different. One, Paul goes into a city and finds friends. And pretty close to on Paul's way out of the city, we see enemies within the city wreaking havoc on one another. And, and so you ultimately have an option in your life, not, not to choose you know, good friends or bad friends, but certainly you have to choose what some people worship and what other people worship. And the Lord presents himself as the only one worthy to be worshiped in our lives. And here we have this amazing encounter where the gospel is coming to this unlikely place called Corinth. And it's doing what it's done in every city behind it. The Lord is redeeming his people. The Lord is sending messengers in because he's not done saving people. And you and I are testimonies of that. So at the beginning of my sermon, I listed off several things that Paul was known for. His actual life, though hard, was to show God's glory again and again and again. His life, though it looks harsh, was ultimately for the sake of those many around them. He says later in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transcendent, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The gospel breaks through in unlikely places to unlikely people. And what we see in this case is that God is orchestrating all these things for the betterment and for the good of his people. We see God saving his people in spite of their wickedness. In this city, like other cities, like our own lives, we are naturally wicked, yet God is so loving and kind and merciful that he saves his people. And then we see that God comforts his people and provides them a messenger out of his love. Paul knew that no matter how much it hurt here and now, it was nothing compared to the hope that would eternally come with the Savior in the new heavens and new earth. In Christ, you and I are in the upward march of humanity. And it's not about the journey. It's about the destination. To a Christian, the journey may be difficult, but the path is a foretaste of glory that we will all share. So we can walk away from this text and we can sing in a moment because of this text. 
by rejoicing in the appointed friendships of God that he has graciously given us, by continuing to proclaim the truths that Jesus is the Messiah of the world, and by resting in the divine protection that we are not under God's wrath, we are only in God's care. Friends, let's pray together. Father, we come to you again this morning just in pure thanks of what you've done for our lives. It's not hard for us to look in this text and see your love as amazing. And it becomes personal when we notice that your love is not just for them, but is also for us. And so God, we thank you that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that we can look at you as our Father, as the one who will eternally comfort us and be present in our lives. We know that the promise that you gave Paul is the same promise that you gave us. And we shouldn't be afraid because you are with us. Father, we say these things in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen.